Episode 373, How to Kick a Big Hospital Out of Your Network. Today, I speak with Cora Opsahl. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I am speaking with Cora Opsahl, who directs the 32BJ Health Fund. This is the second conversation I'm having with Cora. Last one was episode 372, but these two conversations are not really linear, so listen in whatever order you want to. Important to know about Cora's background, in previous roles, she has worked deep in the inner sanctums of the healthcare industry. So she came to 32BJ armed with a BS meter that's finely tuned, which is, as I said last week, an unfortunately essential skill for anyone trying to help patients and members relying on them to successfully navigate the healthcare industry. Here's a pivotal fact. 56% of total spend at the 32BJ Health Fund goes to hospitals. So from a making the juice worth the squeeze perspective, focusing on hospital prices can have a lot of impact. This is doubly true because of the seriously huge price variations for the same exact types of services at different hospitals, even in the same local market. Because the 32BJ Health Fund demands and gets all of its own data, it can actually run reports and see the impact and nuances of hospital spend very clearly. Unlike, frankly, the majority of employers and unions who have zero clue this is all going on behind their backs because they think some other party is actually the fiduciary and not them, which is false, of course. So let's just linger on this really high hospital prices that are various across a market for one moment. Let me read for you a tweet from Rick Renard, link in the show notes. The price of cabbage, C-A-B-G, which stands for coronary artery bypass graft, I think. The price of cabbage varies more than tenfold across U.S. hospitals, ranging from $44,824 to $448,038. There was no evidence to suggest that hospitals that charge the higher price, meaning $448,000 for something that other hospitals are charging $44,000 for, there is no evidence to suggest that hospitals that charge the higher price provide a better quality of care. What? An employer could pay $44,000 or it could pay $448,000. Seriously? This is why we can't have nice raises. Because some employer spent $400,000, not on raises, but on overpriced hospital services. Ugh, so frustrating when employers almost willfully at this juncture turn a blind eye to all of this because they think it might be disruptive. Meanwhile, they're worrying about employee retention and trying to figure out how to give raises. Okay, well... (laughs) Here's a suggestion. Get your health care house in order and then you'll have enough money for raises. But that aside, in the New York City market, 32BJ used all of the data that we talked about in the last episode, episode 372. They used all of that data to deduce quite crisply that New York Presbyterian is really, really expensive, even in comparison to other expensive health systems in the New York metro area. Furthermore, the fund realized that it could not be sustainable without tackling the challenge of hospital prices. As Cora Opsahl says, 
you can't reduce spend by benefit design alone, which reminded me of that famous quote by Yuri Reinhart, it's the price is stupid, which of course reminded me of what David Contorno has said a million times, you can't pay less for healthcare unless you pay less for healthcare. I can't overemphasize these points and their impact on employees and workers. It's really hard to be competitive in the global marketplace when shelling out an extra $400,000 here and an extra whatever tens of thousand dollars there for fringe benefits that do not actually add any value from the worker's standpoint and or confer any additional health. This is just blatantly throwing money away. So there's going to be a few health system peeps listening here who will reflexively mutter under their breath a sentence, including the terminology razor-thin operating margin. It must be an AHA talking point because I talk to a lot of health system people from all over the country and razor-thin operating margin is invariably the term that gets used. But let's just dig into that marketing speak for a moment. While there are some hospitals who assuredly suffered under COVID, were suffering even before COVID and definitely after, Mostly these are rural ones, but let's not talk about them for a moment. Let's talk about the large consolidated health systems who got billions in COVID relief. Are you kidding me with their razor-thin operating margin crocodile tears? There's a link in the show notes entitled, New Study, Hospitals Hike Charges by Up to 18 Times Cost. Here's a few bullet points from that study. Here's the first one. Hospital charges play a major role in mounting healthcare costs with health expenditures closing in on one-fifth of the gross domestic product GDP. We all know that. Here's the second bullet. Hospital profit slash margins have mushroomed by 411% since 1999 to a record $88 billion in 2017. Here's bullet three. The rise in charges coincides with growing hospital mergers and acquisitions by large systems. This is brutally apparent at this juncture. The result is increased market consolidation, which leads to Again, higher profits and increased charges, not savings for patients, as hospital systems often claim. Listen to the show with Kevin Schulman, MD. It explains a lot about how these, in air quotes, razor thin operating margins and the, oh, no, we're losing money on Medicare, so we must cost shift, manifests if you actually follow the dollar. As Dr. Schulman says, it's not A, it's not B. I mean, it's not like payers aren't taking their own piece of the action. You just got to look at their stock valuations to see all that going on. We have a dysfunctional health benefits market and a lot of rational actors in that market doing what you'd expect rational economic actors to do. So anyway, 32BJ sees in their own data that all this is going on with hospitals and they aim to stop covering a super expensive hospital in their local market, which is just making bad even worse. It was a whole thing to do this. And today, Cora Upsall relays the dramatic tale. Cora Upsall, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks, Stacey. I'm excited to be here. So let's talk about 32BJ's probably unprecedented decision to cut New York Presbyterian out of your network. I mean, sadly, in a way, that it is unprecedented because there's many areas across the country where you have one hospital system that is charging, relatively speaking, a lot more or doing things like surprise billing or, you know, just doing things that why wouldn't we be steering members to a higher quality or higher value at a minimum destination? So, you know, if we're talking about the impact of, of hospital pricing, let's talk a little bit about maybe the, how you came to the decision to strike New York Prezi from the network and what the result has been. Sure. Limiting network for our members is never, it's not an easy decision for us. And this really goes back 
a few years, we started looking at our claims data and we analyzed our claims in 2019. In that time frame, we found out that we spent approximately $929 million on all of our health benefits. This includes medical, prescription drugs, vision, dental, other ancillary benefits. Of that, we spent 82% of our dollars or $743 million on hospitals, doctors, and medical staff. And then of that, 68% is hospitals. 68% of the 82% is hospitals. When I look at that as a holistic, like what does that mean for my benefit as a whole? It means that hospital prices comprised 56% of our total spending in 2019. Okay, so over half is hospitals. Over half. I think for us, it's, it got us thinking and saying, you hear a lot in the news about the impact of high prescription drug prices and how we need to attack that. We talk about the affordability from a premium standpoint. How do we help people get insurance? But when you spend more than half of your actual benefit dollars on hospital prices, it made us realize that's where we need to focus and spend our attention. So that really got us thinking as to how should we look at this? We dug in there, which really made us start to say, okay, well, what are we spending our money on when we spend our money on hospital prices? We started looking into different procedures. How much are we spending within New York City? There's five major academic medical centers plus the city-sponsored hospital systems. So of those six hospital systems, how are we spending our dollars in each of them? And we were able to see we spent X dollars at New York Presbyterian, X dollars at, at Northwell Hospitals. What did we spend at NYU or Mount Sinai or Montefiore? And all of this allowed us to say, what's the best way to start to look at that? So we drove down into specific procedures and started to look at specific procedures and what we pay for these specific procedures at each of these hospitals. And what we found was striking. Cliffhanger. (laughs) It was striking to us the wide variety that we pay for different procedures. I'll just highlight a couple of them. When you look at something like a colonoscopy, and the reason we generally call colonoscopies is that I'm not a clinician, but a colonoscopy is a colonoscopy is a colonoscopy. I mean, if you're trying to figure out how to come up with a commodity procedure, it's not a bad, it's obviously not a commodity, but it's maybe as close as you can get. That's what you're saying. It's comparable. Correct. Correct. So we used a colonoscopy and we looked at how much we paid for outpatient colonoscopies by system from 2019 to 2021. And this is our average prices. And we found on average for a colonoscopy, we paid $10,368 at New York Presbyterian. Wow. Meanwhile, we paid $4,139 at Mount Sinai or $2,185 at the New York City Health and Hospital Systems. That's not a rounding error. No, and like I said, it's very striking that we could pay somewhere between $2,000 at New York Health and Hospitals all the way up to $10,368 at New York Presbyterian. And really allowed us to say, is paying five times the same amount for a colonoscopy, like what's the rationale behind that? What is the reason that we would be paying five times difference just depending on where the member goes? And so that's outpatient. And now we also looked at some inpatient procedures and I'm going to use vaginal delivery as an example because we all know inpatient hospital procedures are always going to cost more. But for a vaginal delivery, we paid anywhere from $11,101 at a New York City Health and Hospitals hospital, such as Elmhurst, for example, which is part of our maternity program, up to $41,740 at Montefiore. 
a four times difference for a vaginal delivery. Clinicians may say there's probably some reasons for that, but we really looked at this and we used episodic-based care to try to normalize all of this and really gave us our averages to show you that we're paying a wide range for similar services and similar types of care that really when we look around, can't understand the differences that base those costs. Well, and because you have all of this data aggregated, you also would be able to check if there is complications or whatnot. So effectively what you're saying, if you're normalizing and regularizing the data, that there's these huge cost variations. And it's not clear that there's any additional anything, which basically just paying a lot for the same thing. That's what you're saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. So you look through your data, you find that over half of the money is being spent in in hospitals. And then you see the super wide variation in the cost of care for effectively the same thing, which I can definitely see gives you a a huge platform to be able to, let's just say, have conversations with these entities. (laughs) What'd you do? I think what it came down to is we said, we cannot be sustainable as a health fund and provide the longevity of these benefits without really tackling the challenge of hospital prices. We've done this in a couple of manners. We started by talking to our third-party administrator. So as a self-funded plan, we pay a per-employee, per-month administrative fee to our third-party administrator to administer the benefit. And we discovered that we, as a self-funded plan, we have no control over the contracts that are being made between these hospital systems and the third-party administrators. All we end up doing is paying the claim for these contracts. It is one of the challenges as a self-funded plan that even having this data, there's not a lot we can do with it. So in a typical situation, despite the fact that you have this data and you know all this information, the question is then how do you make it actionable? If there's a TPA that's sitting in the middle who is effectively the contract holder, right? Like you're not holding the contracts with these hospitals. It's this TPA. So you know all this stuff. I mean, my question for you is, all right, well, what'd you do knowing that there is an an interstitial party here that actually is the contract holder? I'm on the edge of my seat relative to like, how did you wind up narrowing your network in the way that you did just given that infrastructure? It started back in 2018 when we implemented our preferred hospital system program, where we have uh, preferred and non-preferred hospitals. Our preferred hospitals members can go to the hospital for an inpatient procedure for $100, and our non-preferred hospitals are $1,000. At the time, the contract between New York Presbyterian and our third-party administrator said, if there is a preferred network, we must be preferred. And we said, hold up, that's not going to work for us because we did actually create our preferred and non-preferred hospital systems for two reasons. One, it was based on price. In New York City, we're really fortunate that we have a lot of really high quality academic medical centers that our members can access. So we really did look at how do we ensure that the lower priced but high quality academic medical centers can be preferred. And New York Presbyterian didn't fall into that category. They are the most expensive academic medical center here in New York City. And we also looked at geography, right? If there was a a need to include a hospital because of geography, somewhat regardless of their price, we'd ensure our members had access to preferred hospitals. It was a complicated and, you know, large, many conversations that were had between us, our third-party administrator, New York Presbyterian, in order to create our preferred network. And the compromise at that time that we ended up doing was saying that any New York Presbyterian hospital that's in Manhattan would be considered non-preferred and any hospital New York Presbyterian owns in the other boroughs, 
So in Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn, or Staten Island, any any New York Presbyterian-owned hospital at that point would be considered preferred, Hmm. which does, you know, in a lot of ways still dilute dilute the savings that goes when you're looking at preferred network systems. So that's where it started. What then happened is we have done some really unique and innovative benefit designs. One of them is our maternity program. Our maternity program is something we're incredibly proud of. It allows our members to have a baby for no more than one $40 copay from their first prenatal visit until their post-birth care. Wow. I mean, that's definitely something because you hear one story after another about not only just how much a, a delivery, maternity care and delivery costs the plan, but then just how much surprise billing and out-of-pocket costs goes on. It's literally thousands of dollars and just talk to anyone who's had a baby lately and you'll <laughs> nine times out of 10, you're going to hear some, there's a story and it's financially sad. So that's right. Huge. And so, yeah, we developed this program where we went through a comprehensive RFI process, a request for information process, where we sent it out to hospitals. You had to meet certain quality standards. You'd be willing to report on certain metrics to us. You had to be one of our preferred hospitals. In order to do that, you were invited to participate. From there, we selected certain hospitals based on geography and the responses to our questionnaires to be part of our maternity program. I think it's important to note that we've got our city-owned hospitals are included in our program because they have an incredible maternity program, which includes Jacoby in the Bronx and Elmhurst in Queens, which for local New York City listeners will probably find, as always finds interesting when we talk about Elmhurst. I think they get a bad rap, but they have an incredible maternity program. But it also includes Maimonides in Brooklyn and Mount Sinai West here in Manhattan, among other hospitals at Metropolitan. And what we did is create this incredible program for our members. They get high quality maternity care. We know that if there's a problem like with co-pays or, or running into issues, any issues, our members can call us directly. We'll help navigate the system for them. And what happened was in the contract renewal with New York Presbyterian and our third-party administrator is they said, any benefit design that you have or your, your plans have, or so as us as a self-funded plan, we have to be included or you can't offer the plan. What? Yes. So New York Presbyterian said, we have to be in your maternity plan or you can't offer the plan any longer. Well, how does a vendor get to dictate the terms to anybody else. Like, this is what I'm not understanding. They're two separate organizations. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how do, I I mean, seriously, like, how does any entity gain agency over some other completely independent other organizations? (laughs) Like, I mean, that would be like me calling up one of my customers and telling them that they had to do something that had nothing to do with me. Put it in in a different way. It would be as though the I think about this from a perspective of I go to buy milk at my locally gro- local grocery store. The contract is between the, the dairy and the local grocery store and the dairy somehow gets to tell the local grocery store that they can't sell milk on Tuesdays. Yeah, like anybody's and I, milk. As a cons- How is that possible? Why is I want to buy milk on Tuesday? You're telling me that the dairy said that you can't sell me milk on Tuesday? Like it's I mean, it's almost like ridiculous. The, it's almost like the dairy telling the grocery store that they have to be closed on Tuesday. You know what I mean? Even, like, yes, yes. It's, and it's so we agree. And I think it really baffled us. It actually did result in the 32BJ union putting support into a bill in the New York state government, which actually matches a lot of bills that are being introduced across states, which we call the HEAL Act. 
which is in an attempt to cut down on what we what we believe are anti-competitive contracting practices. Because how does a hospital system with a contract with a third-party administrator get to define what my benefit gets to be? Yeah. And so it really then got us to a position where we said, we either need to remove New York Presbyterian or we need to stop offering our maternity program. And again, not an easy decision when you're talking about impacting 20,000 members and their family members, you know, in our where our members live. And But it became to the point that we, we really felt like we had no other choice, which then why we took that unprecedented step. Yeah, I mean, what a crazy dynamic there that just any, any entity right? Feels like they have some kind of legal authority to boss around some other completely independent entity. It's just, it's totally baffling. Like I... I, I, (laughs) A little bit speechless. I'm rarely speechless and I'm kind of speechless. You know, I think this is why the National Association of State Health Plans, NASHIP, has really created this model legislation that here in New York was the, the bill was introduced and it's been introduced elsewhere, including I think Connecticut just recently introduced something based on this. Because again, hospitals and hospital contracts with third-party administrators should not be dictating what the self-funded plan can and cannot do with their benefit. They shouldn't dictate that if you create a, a preferred network that they have to be preferred. What if I did it off of location. And I said, we're going to look, all of our members live in Brooklyn. Any Brooklyn hospital is going to be preferred. And you're saying a hospital in the Bronx or a hospital in Massachusetts has to become preferred because you're of a contract you have. Like for us, we just don't feel it's right that anyone gets to dictate our benefit. That's my job. And that's what we use our data for. So obviously, you know, this kind of all tracks back to the data and figuring out that you had over half of your spend going to a hospital system. So if you're trying to make a dent in improving the use of the money, you know, like making sure that the money is well spent and the efficiency of the dollars spent, then obviously that's going to be a a target with a huge X on its back. Then drilling into that data further, which is what you did, you realized that there was one particular hospital system that was overcharging. I'm going to use that term overcharging because if everybody else can manage to perform the same exact service for 5x less, then we have an overcharging situation. It's obvious. So you made the decision, it was a long time coming, just relative to fighting through the bureaucratic red tape and insane contracting terms, but you came out the other side and were able to remove that hospital from the network. And it sounds like you went through a bunch of change management. We just had Ashley Gunter on the program a couple of weeks ago talking about how important it is to ensure that members are communicated with, that nothing feels like it was capricious in any way or unexpected. It sounds like you went through a defined process to ensure that the members were on board with this, anyone that was going to be affected, and came out the other side having a much, in a way, stronger network for it. And you're able to steer members to places where they're not going to wind up with huge, unexpected, out-of-pocket costs. Because financial toxicity is, in fact, clinical toxicity. This is not something which is like, okay, we'll just deal with it. This is something that really affects the lives of members and patients. Is there anything else that you want to add relative to how you're using data relative to hospitals and hospital prices or the impact of these hospital prices? Yeah, I think the other piece that's worth talking about is the data analysis we did in comparing our prices to Medicare prices. We know this is a study that Rand has done now a couple of different times talking about 
what would be the savings if the plan paid Medicare prices? So we did that ourselves. And we repriced our claims from 2016 to 2019. During that time, we spent $1.9 billion in hospital claims. And 1.1 of that billion were inpatient, 829 million were outpatient. But we spent $1.9 billion of hospital claims from 2016 to 2019. So we repriced all of that using Medicare rates. And we discovered we would have paid $803 million at that time frame had we paid Medicare rates, which means we would have saved $1.1 billion or about 58% had we paid Medicare rates during that time frame. And to put that in perspective, from 2016 to 2019, had we paid Medicare rates, we would have saved $1.1 billion. We anticipate that in 2022, we will spend approximately $1.3 billion on our health benefits across the board. So had we paid Medicare rates during that time frame, that's equivalent to an entire year's worth of our current spend. Wow. Yeah, that's my drop the mic moment. I feel a little bit there, Stacey, is that it really goes to show you how high the commercial prices are in comparison to Medicare. And Medicare prices are defined for, you know, efficient hospitals. So Medicare defines these rates as the things that should be able to be paid in order to have a hospital run efficiently and not go into debt, be able to maintain their their business. So why then are you charging me so much more? We know that here in New York City that we pay the hospital systems somewhere between 250% and almost 400% of Medicare rates. Which, you know, there's always going to be somebody who talks about the razor thin margins that hospitals have, blah, blah, blah. It is a talking point, certainly, of hospitals that they have to cost shift to commercial lives in order to make up the difference that they're actually losing money on Medicare. And I would encourage anyone to listen to the show with Dr. Kevin Shulman, episode 366, who gets into that. But the short answer to that is hospitals, most of them haven't mastered the art of fiscal line item accounting. So it's a little difficult to wrap my head around how they're actually figuring this out, number one. But number two, if I have a large campus with a waterfall in the lobby and I'm paying for art in a palatial C-suite, I guess my costs are certainly high. So there's that. We agree. We've looked at what we would call the myths of the reason for high hospital prices. The first being that you need to charge high prices, high commercial prices to offset charity care, Medicare and Medicaid rates. We'd be the first to say states should look at how to increase Medicaid rates to these hospitals, especially state health plans that are paying high commercial rates for their state workers. You could pay less commercial and probably increase Medicaid rates. I'm not an actuary, but I think that if you raise your Medicaid rates, then hopefully you could also lower your commercial rates. I do think it is interesting to look at the different arguments that hospitals make related to why you should charge higher commercial rates. But in the end, we ask the same questions you're asking. And there's a lot of research into this. There's just the RAND report that came out. I just saw something coming out of Indiana, basically debunking the sort of usual suspects that hospitals trot out, which is that they have to cost shift because they're being underpaid someplace else, number one. But that's probably a whole different topic of, of, of conversation. If someone is interested in learning more about 32BJ, is there anywhere that you might direct them? Yes, we are happy to share what we're doing. You can go to 32BJHealthFundInsights.org. 
Perfect. 32bjhealthfundinsights.org. Cora Upsall, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. It was my pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.